Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, tweaking yeast to create the beers of the future. Today we're tasting nine beers. Um, overall, the project is about 200 years. And the benefits of collaborating with indigenous peoples. Nothing that I've done personally in the Shingu could have been done without real, lasting relationships with the indigenous peoples. Plus, how our brains stop us from breathing and coughing at the same time. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 28th, 2016. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Adam Levy. First up this week, Noah Baker looks to the Amazon to find out about working with indigenous peoples. In the early 90s, Michael Heckenberger, an anthropologist and archaeologist from the University of Florida, headed to the Amazon. His goal was to further understand the pre-colonial history of the indigenous peoples in the Americas. But there was a problem. The place where I wanted to work and the people that I wanted to work with uh, were actually considering, you know, kind of closing... uh, the door to outsiders coming in. When he arrived, he took the opportunity to work with indigenous leaders, helping them launch self-development associations. So I got to know them pretty well. And through that relationship and really uh, friendships early on, uh, they accepted uh, the idea of me coming in and doing work on uh, what I was interested in studying. This relationship with a community called the Kwikuru has since become foundational to his research, and their contributions have helped Michael make some of his most significant discoveries. The chief of the Kwikuru, uh, Afukaka Kwikuru, who's a co-author on, on some, some of the articles um, that we've written, uh, he brought me to a pre-Columbian site, and it was immediately apparent that that archaeological site was about 10 or 15 times as big as their contemporary village. Without the help of the Kwikuru, Michael says, his work simply wouldn't be possible. Not only would it have not been possible, it would have been no fun. Even though the Kwikuru and their culture were the subject of Michael's research, he doesn't describe them as study participants, but instead reciprocal partners. So we'd go out and do the work together and they'd learn a little bit about archaeology and the way I thought about history and you know, I'd learn a lot about, you know, their specific history. And it's not just archaeological knowledge that Michael benefited from during his time in the Amazon. There's snakes and jaguars and bugs and all kinds of tropical diseases. And the Kwikuru, um, and particularly the chief and his family, 
you know, took care of me. I, I probably wouldn't have lived through it if it wasn't for their help and participation. Michael's experience has been fruitful both scientifically and personally for him and the Guikuru, but that's not necessarily always the case. Many times somebody just kind of comes knocking at the door and says, okay, well, you know, if you could just step out of the way, you know, we're here to do good science and we guarantee you this is going to help you. And like any reasonable person, you know, if somebody came knocking at your door and said, listen, if you don't mind us, you know, going and, you know, taking some samples and whatnot from around your garden and in your backyard and, you know, uh, maybe a, you know, a genetic sample from your child's mouth, we all might say, hey, can we sit down at the coffee, at the dinner table and talk about this? This kind of lack of communication can be damaging to relationships, but the problems can run deeper. For example, in the past, the formation of scientifically protected areas has led to the eviction of indigenous communities from their land, something which has far-reaching consequences. Here's Rebecca Adamson from the organisation First Peoples Worldwide. The losses that indigenous people face when they can no longer uh, steward their land takes them to the brink of complete annihilation. There's a spiritual and cultural connection to the land where people see their purpose of their existence being tied to taking care of the land. There's clear, tangible economic aspects uh, in Africa. They lose access to water. They lose access to the sour gourds they eat. But they also lose access to their identity. And it's not just the people that can suffer through lack of cooperation. Rebecca argues that the science suffers too. For example, in ecology. Indigenous people have a particular database of 40,000 years of ecological knowledge. The language and expression can be fundamentally different, but it is there. And I think scientists, particularly what we're seeing in the climate change realm, we're seeing more and more scientists call upon indigenous peoples to assume some leadership and begin bringing their way of understanding into the world for solving the problems we're all facing. The process of forming good working relationships with indigenous people can be a long and delicate one, and that can cause problems for researchers looking to do these sorts of studies. For many people's minds, it complicates things um, if they have to ask, if they have to have permission, if they have to design it in a way that's also relevant um, to the indigenous people. So many people see it as an impediment to conducting their work. One might say that, as an anthropologist, Michael has a bit of an advantage in this area. You know, I'm an anthropologist and, and an archaeologist, and so trained in a way that is, you know, pre-adapted to working with local communities. An engineer, for instance, might not be. You know, their motives for learning the local language or integrating themselves into the local culture may be significantly less. But Michael doesn't think that this needs to be as much of a hindrance as some may think. Many people have in their mind that indigenous people are not up to speed in understanding engineering, scientific research and the like. And while there was a time when, when many of them, you know, really, they, they, they didn't speak our languages and they didn't, didn't spend, you know, much time in our cities and our schools, that's changed. And so they really, you know, are, are in a position today of being full partners and, in my experience, are quite willing partners. And Michael's experience in the Amazon isn't the only one. Increasingly, these sorts of partnerships are being formed all over the world. Here's Rebecca again. What you're having in South America, you can have in Africa, you can have in Asia, you can have in Russia. Uh, these are stories that are coming up, and there's a trend, and they all go together. And, and they're pointing us to how, how we can do better 
really. That was Noah Baker speaking with Rebecca Adamson and Michael Heckenberger. If you want to read more about the potential benefits of working in partnership with Indigenous people, then Nature's Careers section has just the article for you. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, recruiting birds to help hunt honey and working out where the common ancestor of all life may have lived. But first, we're going to think about something that most of us do without thinking. Breathing. A paper in Nature this week looks at how the brain coordinates breathing with other behaviours such as talking, swallowing and coughing. All right, Adam, give it a go. (coughs) As Adam has just demonstrated, coughing is timed to happen after a breath in during a respiratory phase that scientists call post-inspiration. And that timing is really important, as paper author Nino Ramirez explained to me. It's, it's called the protection of the airways because the airways are very, very sensitive. You know, they have direct contact to the blood. And if you get bacteria down into the lungs, then um, you get a pneumonia. And so all the behaviors that actually use the, the mouth kind of like swallowing and etc., that has to be protected from the inhalation. And that's why patients, for example, like, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, he had Parkinson's, so he died on pneumonia because the swallowing didn't work very well. And so he get, uh, you know, each time he eats something or drinks something, a little bit goes into the lungs and then gets infected. So it's, it's extremely important to clear your airways, and that's happening through the coordination between your inspiration and this post-inspiratory phase. Before your recent study, is this something that researchers had looked for in the brain? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it started really like 25 years ago, because 25 years ago, people discovered something called the Prebertzinger complex. It's an, a center for inspiration. And everybody thought, OK, well, this is where breathing is generated. And uh, the predominant idea was that your, your inspiratory center inhibits the other areas. And so you didn't really propose that there's another center for this. But what we discovered is, in fact, that there is a special circuitry that is active during this phase. And, and this actually also explains why, when you don't coordinate them, that you actually can swallow while you do inspirations. How did you actually find this special circuitry or brain centre? You were looking in a mouse brain. You know, it's, it's a very nice question that you ask because I was trying to find this area since '96. And each time I had an undergraduate student, I put them on the project and each time they did not succeed and then they left my lab. And finally, I had um, my graduate student, Tatiana Anderson, and and I gave her the same project and I said, Tatiana, if this doesn't work, don't leave my lab, we have other projects. But she succeeded and she found, um, we cut the brain in this kind of area that we suspected could be the the site of this uh, post-inspiratory center. And, uh, and then we discovered it. So it was a 20-years search, for sure. Wow. Well, congratulations in that case. You must be really pleased to have finally found oh it. Oh, my God. We were so excited, I tell you. What made you so sure there was a separate brain centre for post-inspiration? Because, as you said, most people thought it was controlled by inhibition by the inspiration centre. Yes, exactly. It's so funny because um, um, I didn't believe this. And um, I, 
I wouldn't say enemies, but we had competitors for quite some time. However, now that we found it, I realize that we all right. We are all right in our own way. How do you mean that you're all right? <laughs> because the, the two centers, the inspiratory center and the post-inspiratory center, the timing is controlled by inhibition. And that's what the other people definitely got right, you know. And uh, so, you know, we're converging on, on a common truth. Do we now have a really good understanding of how the different phases of breathing are controlled? Exactly. And we can now uh, really dissect these two areas in, in order to understand how you, you avoid that they overlap. So I'm right now working with colleagues, for example, in Frankfurt uh, that are neuropathologists, and uh, we will look at uh, disorders. Uh, for example, there's something called spinocerebellar ataxia, and uh, these patients have huge swallowing problems and, and often die because of these problems. And we want to look at their brains. At the same time, we look at the physiology of the center to better understand, you know, what are the, the characteristic neurotransmitters in this area. And we know already, for example, if you take cough medication, you take a, a very low um, concentration opiate. And we know that this center is extremely sensitive to opiates. So we think that this is actually how this cough medicine works. But we can now, uh, you know, explore better mechanisms than that. And then there's another uh, very interesting uh, aspect to this, uh, which is sudden infant death syndrome. You know, in sudden infant death syndrome, you, you have problems with arousal, but you also have problems with uh, aspiration. And we are looking at prematurity, and, and this coordination between these centers is not fully evolved, and especially in premature babies. So, again, it's, it's something we really want to understand. That was Nino Ramirez from Seattle Children's Hospital in Washington State. You can read his paper at nature.com forward slash nature. There's loads more detail on how they found the brain centre and the different neurotransmitters they tested on it. Still to come, we take a look at the US's presidential candidates and what we know about their scientific stances. That's in the news chat, but before that, it's our favourite science from elsewhere. It's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. What were our distant ancestors like? Not your great-grandmother, not some ancient ape, not even the ancestor you share with a Venus flytrap, but further back to an ancestor shared by all life. What was that like? We know that the last universal common ancestor, or Luca, was a microbe that lived about 3.5 billion years ago. Now we have a more detailed picture. Researchers investigated the evolution of more than 6 million genes from modern-day microbes. These showed that Luca's genes would have made it well-suited to an environment rich in CO2, hydrogen and iron. Perhaps Luca hung out in hydrothermal vents. Check out that paper in Nature Microbiology. Members of the Yao tribe in Mozambique have a trick up their sleeve when it comes to hunting for honey. They recruit birds to help. The honey hunters make special calls to attract the appropriately named Greater Honey Guide Bird. Using these calls, more than double the tribe's chances of recruiting a honey guide reports a paper in Science. The birds then lead the way to the bees' nests. The humans get the honey, and the birds get to eat the beeswax that the humans leave behind. This behaviour shows that wild animals can learn to respond to human calls. The honey hunter sound is from CN Spotswood et al.
Now, you probably shouldn't drink the alcohol that's found in most labs. But there's one lab in Belgium where the shelves are not stacked with ethanol, but with beer. Reporter Ewan Calloway took a trip there to get boozy in the name of science. Uh, our cold room is a bit special. Well, it's not that special, but it's not the... Actually, uh, there's not too much beer in here now. So there's a few samples there. There's a few crates of beer. That's more than... Yeah. More than average. Welcome to Kevin Verstreppen's lab at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Those crates of beer in the cold room? They're samples for an experiment happening later this morning. Today we're tasting nine beers. Um, overall, the project is about 200 beers. But there's so many you can do before you lose focus. So we, had to, we do this twice a week. We've been doing it for four months now. That's Miguel Roncaroni, a postdoc in the lab. He's creating a scientific guide to those 200 different beers. He positions a few glasses on a table in front of us. Soon, there will be dozens more, as well as plates of crackers and spit buckets. The glasses are black, so we can't see the color of what we're tasting. Did I mention that it's 10.30 in the morning? Yes, it's important to do it in the morning. Why? Uh, if you're hungry, your senses are a bit more focused. They need their senses in tip-top shape in order to appreciate the work of one of beer's most important ingredients— and the superstar of their lab, yeast. Here's lab head Kevin Verstreppen. Yeast is vital to brewing for the simple reason that it, that it makes alcohol and carbon dioxide and also lots of flavors. So it really is almost the engine behind making beer. But not all yeast is created equal. If you look at them, they all look the same. They're these oval-shaped uh, microbes, but they differ in many ways. Um, for example, some yeasts can make way more alcohol than others. But I would say the most important characteristic is probably the flavor production. So yeast, apart from alcohol, produce different chemicals in small quantities. They're extremely important for how we perceive the product, be it beer or wine or even bread or chocolate. Yeah, chocolate is fermented too. But the focus of today's tasting is beer. The tastings are conducted in silence around a big orange table. Eight lab members are here. A beer arrives, and they rate its smell and taste for dozens of different qualities. At the end of the tasting, the team discusses the beers. Things can get pretty technical. Ethyl acetate flavors pear drop candies. I think the highest you can okay. get. People, it was only for VG and then it did acetate. Balancing flavors and smells like these is crucial to making great beer. Kevin says that many breweries aren't always using the right yeast for the different beers they make. His lab wants to help. They run a brewing consultancy and they do research on beer too. They recently sequenced the genomes of more than 150 yeast strains from breweries all over the world and use this to create a family tree of beer yeast. So one of the things we try to do is to make better yeast. It's a bit like early farmers. They had to work with, with wild plants and, and animals, and they slowly domesticated them and started breeding uh, new varieties that were much better for, for what they wanted, that produced way more food, that tasted better. And so now we're trying to do the same with yeast, so trying to make them better so that the brewers can make better beer and, and we'll have an easier time making good beer. They work with multinational beer conglomerates, trend-setting American craft beer makers, and even 400-year-old breweries run by Trappist monks. Their clients can all benefit from better yeast, Kevin says. 
So we have a few good ones. Uh, one I, I like is one that doesn't produce much alcohol, but produces lots of flavor, which makes it possible to produce sort of a Belgian triple style, so a strong beer with lots of flavor, but without having the typical 9% of alcohol that Belgian triple beers would have. So that's a cool yeast. Um, the ones we like most are, of course, the ones we really created in the lab because they, they're a bit like our babies. Most of these new strains are made through conventional breeding, not genetic engineering, because most breweries aren't interested in selling genetically modified beer. Kevin's lab has dabbled in GM beer for their own research, but it can produce some pretty extreme characteristics, like the yeast strain they engineered to produce extremely high levels of isoamyl acetate, a chemical found in lots of beers that smells of banana. Whether this is desirable, to be honest, the beers you make are more like banana milkshake than, than beer. So is this really something we want to do? Maybe for some products, but not always. The lab's research could also help the team understand the biology of more complex organisms, like humans. The same proteins that help beer yeast clump together and fall to the bottom of the fermenting tank also help fungal pathogens get a hold of human tissue. This kind of research attracts a lot of students, but Kevin is quick to dispel the idea that his lab is one big keg party. Students as well, especially when we tell them we do regular beer tastings, and of course sometimes we get some presents from breweries, some, some crates of free beer. But what I always tell them, and, and, and it's really true, it, is that you know beer is, is an industry, um, and so they're trying to make a product, they try to make it better, they care about quality. But in, in the end of the day, um, it's... It's genetics work, and when you're pipetting, it really doesn't matter whether you're pipetting a human cell looking for the next cure against cancer, or you're trying to unravel a genetic mechanism that is important for, for brewing. So the work isn't that different, and, you know, we're not drinking for fun. That was Kevin Verstreppen and Miguel Roncoroni talking to Ewan Calloway, and definitely not drinking for fun. Ewan has written a feature about the Beer Lab, which you can find at nature.com forward slash news. Speaking of which, it's time for our weekly news chat, and Jeff Tollefson joins us on the line from New York. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Now, Clinton and Trump have now picked their running mates for, for this year's election in the US. It seems like a good time to ask where the two of them stand on science. Now, now, Trump is much newer to politics than Clinton, but how much do we know about the political positions of these two candidates? Well, we know quite a bit about the positions of Hillary Clinton. Um, she has a very organized campaign, um, a big staff that's laid out uh, policy positions on everything from biomedical research to climate. Um, the the situation is very different with Donald Trump. Um, his campaign has been more freewheeling. It's been more about, uh, you know, challenging the establishment than actually staking out uh, real policy positions on issues. So we don't have a lot of information, um, particularly on core science issues, outside of, uh, of climate change. There we know that he has, uh, he has challenged the science repeatedly and, and said that, uh, you know, we need to, you know, promote uh, fossil fuels uh, in the United States so that we can have jobs and economic development. And how, how does Hillary Clinton stand on climate change? Her positions look a lot like those of Obama. She's a believer. So, you know, a world under Hillary Clinton would look a lot like a world under Obama as far as climate change is concerned. And in terms of more broad scientific funding and scientific research, is Hillary Clinton looking to carry on Obama's legacy? 
Yes, Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party in general has taken this position that science is fundamental to um, the country's future, to economic development, to uh, innovation, and really to, to maintaining a leadership position in the world. It seems like the Democrats have now positioned themselves somewhat as the party of science, as if only one party can be that. In the 2008 campaign, Obama really put an emphasis on science. And since then, you know, the Democrats have, uh, have basically had this kind of constant outreach to the scientific community. The question is whether that is, uh, is somehow politicizing science and, and endangering the way that science is perceived. If, uh, if suddenly science is perceived as a partisan issue, then, uh, then some people fear that you're going to have um, some kind of a backlash when it comes to, to scientists presenting evidence on important policy decisions that are being made by the Congress and future administrations. Are the differences between the two candidates really just the differences between the Republicans and the Democrats? Well, there's certainly more at work. Um, the old differences between Republicans and Democrats, um, those still exist. But when it comes to Trump versus Clinton, you have to remember that Trump is a very different kind of candidate. He is a real outsider. Um, he is, uh, in many ways, running against his own party. Um, so he's, he's challenging the Republicans as well as the Democrats um, and coming at this from a very populist position. You know, where he's tapping into anger at, uh, at, at stagnant wages, um, at, at, uh, at the economy, at the growing divide and inequality. So, you know, these are his core issues. You know, what we can say about, about Donald Trump outside of that is, you know, we, we just have to pick little pieces of, of his comments and uh, interpolate. But it's, uh, it's a dangerous game. It seems like over the last few months there have been some serious attempts from the Trump campaign to try and try and legitimize him as a candidate. In that vein, is it likely that he will start seeking more scientific advice and making more public comment on scientific research? In a typical campaign, we would expect to see, you know, candidates have to delve into all kinds of issues, many of which are science related, and, and really flesh out positions as questions arise. Um, the only question is whether this is going to be a typical campaign. So far, it hasn't been. Now, of course, some researchers are Republicans, some researchers are Democrats. But as you've said, Trump isn't a typical Republican candidate, and there's still a lot of uncertainty about his attitudes to research. Has there been any specific reactions to Trump from the scientific community in America? A lot of researchers are concerned about Trump and some of the positions he's taken on scientific issues like global warming. But, you know, if you, if you talk to them, sometimes it seems like they're, they're speaking more as citizens. They're more, they're, they're as, as concerned about the, some of the populist positions he's taken on, you know, uh, on, on immigration, on trying to block um, Muslim immigration into the country, on trying to build a wall. Um, in, in some ways, some of these concerns are related to Trump himself and not just his positions on science. You know, that said, I've been, I've been calling around and looking for people. I have yet to find anybody who's either been contacted by him or who supports him. 
Jeff, thanks for chatting. Find out more about the candidates at nature.com forward slash news, where you'll also find all the latest science news from around the world. And if you want to let us know what you think of the show, just drop us a line. Email podcast at nature.com, tweet at nature podcast, or just write us an iTunes review. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Adam Levy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.